Mary and Carl received a brief mention in the previous episode on Medal of Honor recipient John L. Smith in the first months of the air campaign on Guadalcanal. As a member of Smith's BMF-223, Captain Carl would leave Guadalcanal as the Marine's second leading ace. He would eventually retire as a Major General after 35 years in the Corps. Along the way, Carl would be twice decorated with the Navy Cross, the Navy and Marine Corps' second highest award for valor, help usher the Navy and Marine Corps into the jet age as an early test pilot, and see combat in two wars over 20 years apart. It was a career that started in biplanes and ended in supersonic jets, and is a story worthy of a little detour here. Welcome to the Aviation Medals of Honor. Marion Carl was born on an Oregon farm in 1915. Like many boys of the era, he grew up with a fascination of all things aviation, something that led him to study aero engineering at Oregon State. It was during his college years that he took his first flying lessons and, as he told it, was bit by the flying bug. Upon graduation, Carl enters the Marine Corps, completes elimination training, and arrives at Naval Air Station in Pensacola, Florida in November of 1938 where prospective Marine Corps aviators trained alongside their Navy counterparts. It was, and remains today, a difficult program with a high washout rate, but Marion would say that the flying came fairly easy to him. Naval aviator training at the time exposed the cadets to a variety of single and multi-engine land and seaplanes. Graduates of the program were supposed to be able to fly and be able to be assigned to any number of naval aircraft, from multi-engine patrol aircraft to dive bombers or fighters, but Marion has one thing on his mind, flying fighters. However, the Corps consists of only two fighter squadrons at the time, appropriately named VMF-1 and VMF-2, and fighter pilot slots are few and far between. Getting a heads up from a friend that there was a fighter pilot slot open in VMF-1, Carl skips his post-graduation leave and drives straight through to Quantico, Virginia. He's given the slot much to the disappointment of a fellow pilot who took a little bit longer in route. He might not be making friends, but he got what he wanted. Carl spends about six months with VMF-1 before heading back to Pensacola as an instructor pilot. The assignment is short-lived, though, and in August of 1941, he is transferred out to an operational squadron, VMF-221, which at the time was flying the Brewster Buffalo, although Marion manages to get checked out in the Grumman Wildcat. It's an opportune moment for Carl, and something that might very well have saved his life several months down the road. I'll talk about that later. For now, when the war kicks off on December 7, 1941, VMF-221 and its buffaloes are attached to the USS Saratoga. In the aftermath of the destruction at Pearl Harbor, they sail for Wake Island, intending to reinforce the Marine garrison there, but arrive too late and Wake has fallen. 221 is diverted to Midway Island instead, arriving there on Christmas Day in 1941. Things would be quiet around Midway for a while, and then erupt into activity towards the end of May 1942. It's apparent to the Marines that something is brewing as Midway starts to fill with aircraft. 
The Marine Corps sends Douglas SBD dive bombers, a Marine Scout Bomber Squadron 241. The Navy beefs up its PBY Catalina Patrol aircraft, as well as adding six of the new TBM Avenger torpedo aircraft. Even the Army Air Forces join in, sending a handful of B-17s and B-26s. Among the arriving aircraft are several F-4F Wildcats. As one of the few VMF-221 Marines with prior experience in the Wildcat, one is assigned to the by-then Captain Carl, who has a few days to get reacquainted with the Wildcat. On June 3, 1942, long-range Catalinas report the approaching Japanese fleet. The Battle of Midway is on. Early morning on the 4th, radar detects a large Japanese force inbound at Midway, and VMF-221 is scrambled and intercept. It's a 107 aircraft strike inbound, including 36 Zero escorts. The Marines oppose them with 18 Buffaloes and 6 Wildcats. The Marines have the altitude advantage, and Carl and the others get a firing pass through the Japanese bombers before the Zeros pounce. With several Zeros closing, Captain Carl wisely blows through the fight, but has picked up a Zero on his tail. He takes a few hits, but the rugged Wildcat shakes it off and Carl manages to lose the pursuing Zero in a cloud. A lot of people, even among the aggressive Marine fighter pilots, might have called it a day. But Carl pokes his nose back into the fight and spots three Zeros lagging behind the now retiring Japanese force. This is something that the Aces all seem to have in common, an aggressive mindset that pushes them. Historically, something like 5% of pilots accounted for the majority of air-to-air kills, a statistic that holds true throughout different nations and different wars. Major John Smith and Captain Carl alone would account for over one-third of VMF-223's kills at Guadalcanal. And while you can't paint them all with one brush, for the most part the top aces have several things in common. Number one, skill. They were gifted pilots and good shots. Many were farm boys like Marion who grew up with a rifle in their hands and had an innate understanding of what it took to hit a moving target. Number two was luck. Luck in the sense that they were at the right places at the right time. A Mary and Carl showing up in Guadalcanal as a second lieutenant fresh out of flight school with 300 hours likely wouldn't have had the same success that Captain Carl did, a 1,500-hour fighter pilot and flight leader. But lastly, and seemingly most important, was an aggressive mindset. These guys were the hunters the killers, the alpha wolves of the wolf pack. Marion shows his tendency at midway when he stalks the retreating Japanese force, slips in unobserved behind a zero, and splashes it for his first kill. VMF-221 had engaged the Japanese force with a mix of 24 buffaloes and wildcats. Fifteen aircraft are missing, and all but one of the surviving aircraft are shot up to some degree. The CO and XO are both among the missing, Nevertheless, when an alert goes out a few hours later, Captain Carl and one other pilot, Captain William Humbeard, man up their fighters and take off to meet what they expect to be another large Japanese force inbound. While the official marine history say that there were only two operational aircraft, Carl's biography indicates that several of the buffaloes were flyable, but none of the shaken survivors of the first attack manned them when the alert sounded. Carl's own wildcat is damaged, but he takes off once again demonstrating the aggressiveness that would make him so successful. The alert turns out to be a false alarm, and the two Marine fighters return to Midway, and VMF-221's part in the battle is over.
the 221 Marines claim 11, matching actual Japanese losses, although several of those fell to anti-aircraft fire, so they were slightly inflated. The Marines have lost 15 airplanes in the fight. 14 of those pilots were killed. Marion and the other Wildcat pilots fare better than their comrades in the Buffalo. They still suffer about a 33% loss rate, but that's half as much as the 65% loss rate of the Buffaloes. The Buffalo's major combat debut would also be its last, as the remaining Buffaloes in service with the Marines are relegated to a training role. The other land-based aircraft at Midway suffer as well. VMSB-241 loses 10 of its Dauntlesses in an ineffective strike on the Japanese carriers. Out of the six Navy TBM Avenger torpedo bombers, five are shot down. The Army Air Forces lose two of their four B-26s. The land-based Midway force is devastated, losing over half their attacking aircraft to little effect on the approaching Japanese fleet. But they played a critical part in the battle. Their spirited attacks, along with 221's defensive battle, caused the Japanese commander of the attack force to recommend another strike on Midway, causing the Japanese fleet commander to reconfigure his aircraft ordnance from naval strike to land attack. When the U.S. Navy carriers are discovered, he has to switch that ordnance back. It's a critical delay, and when the Navy strike force arrives overhead, they find the Japanese carrier flight decks loaded with aircraft and ordnance. The Navy sends four to the bottom. The Midway-based aircraft didn't suffer in vain. Shortly after the battle is over, the surviving Marines of VMF-221, including Captain Carl, depart the island. Carl will join Captain John L. Smith and VMF-223 in Hawaii in mid-June. It's a busy time as the squadron receives new pilots and aircraft and preps for its departure to the combat zone. They would sail on August 2, 1942. On 20 August, they fly off the light carrier USS Long Island for Guadalcanal. Now, Guadalcanal is not a very welcoming place, even for Marines used to austere conditions, and even if there weren't a bunch of Japanese there trying to kill them. Marion recalled his first night on the island, quote, We had no tents that first night, just a canvas fly and Japanese blankets, even Japanese food. Early in the morning of the 21st, we were awakened by heavy gunfire from the perimeter, about a mile and a half away. As the shooting dragged on, we could see tracers slicing through the dark, and I began to wonder what I was doing there, fully exposed in the open under a fly, armed only with my 45 caliber pistol. I remember thinking, I sure hope those guys on the line can hold them. Unquote. Things slowly improve but Guadalcanal remains primitive living throughout 223's time on the island. Marion continues, quote, It was widely held that Guadalcanal was the only place on earth where you could stand up to your knees in mud and still get dust in your eyes. The island was slightly below the equator, and the temperature and humidity were oppressive during daytime, but nights could be cold. I was ashore three days before I took a bath in the river, or even washed my hands. He continues, Later we became more civilized and had canvas tents with mud floors. Unquote. Due to the supply situation on Guadalcanal, rations were cut to two meals a day. Harassing attacks by aircraft or passing submarines or ships happened most nights. 
depriving the Marines of much-needed sleep. Tropical diseases were also rampant on the island. Malaria took its toll, and almost everyone was affected by dysentery, including Captain Carl, who had to stand down from flying for several days due to it. The commander of VF-5, the Navy Wildcat Squadron, which spent time on the island with 223 after the carrier, the USS Saratoga, was torpedoed, would say he thought a week on Guadalcanal was worse than two months on a carrier, going on to say that a man's guts, or courage, was directly rated how rested he was. Four to six weeks was seen as the maximum length of a combat tour on Guadalcanal. The remote and primitive war in the Solomons was a far cry from the European air war, with its pubs and three-day passes to London. The only thing they seemed to have in common was death. Carl's first big engagement happens on August 24th, engaging the strike force from the light carrier Ryojo to kick off the Battle of the Eastern Solomons. Carl shoots down three Type 97 bombers and one zero. With his one kill at Midway, he just became the first ace in Marine Corps history, but it's hardly noticed at the time. The Marines were too busy and too tired to care. A week into 223's stay, Captain Carl has racked up two more kills. By 9 September, he has 11 kills to his credit and is Guadalcanal's leading ace. On that day, a mixed force of VMF-223 and VMF-224 Wildcats intercept a force of Betty Bombers and their Zero Escorts. It's Carl's 13th mission. He's flying his lucky number 13 Wildcat and has just splashed his second bomber of the day for his 13th kill when he's hit hard by an unseen Zero. In his words, quote, Bullets began flying all over the place. The cockpit filled up with smoke, blinding me. I never did get a look at what was on my tail before I bailed out. The parachute opened at 10,000 feet, and I floated down off Neal Island a few miles off the coast of Guadalcanal, about 30 miles from home. I was dunked into the ocean 400 yards off the island and started to swim to shore. I got within hailing distance of the beach, but the current prevented me from landing. I was just about to give up when a native boy paddled out in a canoe, grabbed me, and hauled me aboard more dead than alive, unquote. His ordeal isn't over yet. He's delivered to a native village on Guadalcanal, but several thousand Japanese still stand between him and the safety of marine positions. As briefly mentioned in the previous episode, the Cactus Air Force pilots could mostly rely on a friendly native population, at least in the Southern Solomons. But there wasn't just friendly natives out there, and I wanted to expand just briefly on that. Dating back to the late 1800s, the Solomon Islands were administered as a British and Australian protectorate. Covering over 60,000 square miles, the Solomon chain was inhabited by about 650 white settlers and around 100,000 native Malaysians by the 1940s. When the Japanese took Rabol in January 1942, the Solomons were an obvious next target, and most of the non-native population looked to leave for safer environments. They packed aboard the last ship to Australia, which pulls out of Tugali on February 8, 1942. But while most evacuate, a handful of plantation owners and missionaries stay behind to tend to their land or care for their flocks. There are a few others that stay behind with a different purpose, though. They are volunteers with the Royal Navy Coast Watchers and would have an effect far exceeding their small numbers on the Guadalcanal campaign. 
The Coastwaster program evolved out of a Royal Australian Navy initiative during World War I to place observers along the vast deserted stretches of the northern Australian coastline. It's a little used and obscure program, but it costs little and is kept alive through the interwar years. With war in the Pacific looking ever more likely, the Coastwaster program gets renewed attention in the late 30s. By 1941, there was a network of over 100 stations operating the islands north of Australia, from New Guinea out to the New Hebrides, including several operating in the Solomon Island chain. Each station is provided with a radio and told to report any ship or aircraft movements. That's it. They're just supposed to be an extra set of eyeballs out there in friendly territory. But with the rapid Japanese expansion across the Pacific, and in particular into the Solomons, many suddenly find themselves trapped hundreds of miles behind enemy lines. These weren't trained commandos, skilled in small unit combat operations and infiltration tactics. Few have any military training. For the most part, they were civilian administrators, or planners, traders, or even missionaries who were never expected to be operating behind enemy lines for months on end which is what the Solomon Islands Coast Watchers did. From February through August, six months, they operate on their own on enemy-occupied islands. With the Marines finally landing on Guadalcanal on 7 August 1942, the Coast Watchers would function as an early warning system for the invasion fleet. At 11.37 a.m. on 7 August, a Coast Watcher on Bougainville in the northern Solomon sends out their first warning. 27 bombers heading southeast. The message provides the initial warnings to Admiral Fletcher that aircraft were inbound to his carrier task force. With a prior warning, Navy fighter pilots and ship's gunners splash 16. Ten days after the Marines landed, the Coast Watchers have a central radio station operating on Henderson Field, receiving messages from the northern Solomon Islands of Buka and Bougainville about incoming Japanese raids and passing them directly to the Marines. They proved to be a very effective early warning system. Even after the Marines established a radar station on Guadalcanal, Coast Washers often gave the first warnings. The radio would crackle with a short, 40 bombers heading yours, or something similar, and the Wildcat pilots would scramble. Cactus's Wildcat fighters needed a long time to get to intercept altitude. It took them some 45 minutes to get to 30,000 feet and without advance warning, they may not be able to intercept the incoming bombers. And even if they could intercept, without an altitude advantage in order to use their superior dive speed, they were extremely vulnerable to escorting zeros. The Coast Watchers weren't just providing early warning of air raids. They also gave the Marines vital information on ship movements down the slot. Even in the dark of night, they could note the increased wave size due to the wakes of the warships to determine enemy movement. Yet another contribution of the Coast Watchers was a rescue network for downed airmen. They provided the airmen with shelter and medical care, and arranged for either native transportation via canoe to return airmen to friendly hands, or arranged pickup by submarine or PBY flying boat. The Coast Watchers saved over 100 flyers from captivity, or worse, at the hands of the Japanese. The Coast Watchers of the Solomons were a truly heroic group sticking it out through long months of Japanese occupation, when hope seemed lost, supplies were low, and the native population wavered. They were a remarkable group of men, and a few women as well, and were a vital part of the Allied success in the Solomons. 
Admiral Bolhazel would later say about them, quote, the Coast Watchers saved Guadalcanal, and Guadalcanal saved the South Pacific, unquote. While Mary and Carl didn't have any direct interaction with any of the three Coast Watchers active on Guadalcanal, he did benefit from their presence and influence on the native population. After his bailout and being delivered to Guadalcanal, he is sheltered in a friendly village. Attempts to go overland to Henderson are turned back by the many Japanese patrols. Ultimately, he is returned to Henderson Field by a small native boat he managed to get the engine working on. It's been five days since his bailout over the slot. He's been given up for dead, and his first task is to collect his personal gear that has been redistributed among the other pilots. In his absence, Major Smith has shot down five aircraft to raise his tally to 16, taking over the title of leading Marine Ace from Carl. Taken to see Captain's Air Force Commander General Roy Geiger, the first thing Captain Carl reportedly asks is for General Geiger to ground Major Smith for five days so he can catch up. In his biography, Marion says he doesn't necessarily remember it that way, although he did admit competition was fierce among the aces. Carl engages in several more combats before 223 ceases combat operations on 10 October 1942, running his score up to 16 and a half. Hurried back to the U.S. upon completion of 223's tour, Carl was put on a war bond tour along with Major Smith and Dick Magrum, the commanding officer of BMSB 232, the SBD dive bomber squadron that arrived on Guadalcanal with 223. Now Carl didn't think much of the Donegan Pony Circuit overall although he did get a wife out of it, a New York City model named Edna he met on one of his war bond stops. He's happy when his war bond tour is over, though, and he can get back to flying. He rejoins VMF-223 in Southern California, except now as the commanding officer. 223 trades the Wildcats in for Corsairs, and by November 1943, the now Major Carl and VMF-223 are back in the Solomons. Times have changed, and it was 223 and the Allies who were now the aggressors. He scores two more kills with 223 before being brought up to a group staff job in the New Hebrides. Several months later, disappointed with the lack of action as a staff member, and with a mother dying of cancer at home, Carl requests orders to return to the U.S. If Marion had faded off to a stateside training job at that point, he still would have had a remarkable career. He's a triple ace with combat at the two pivotal battles of the Pacific, Midway and Guadalcanal. But it's just the beginning of Carl's remarkable flying career. In late 1944, he reports to the new Naval Air Test Center, Patuxent River, Maryland, where a new breed of pilots, test pilots, bring out the latest naval aircraft prior to feed service. Carl had always been a gifted natural aviator. That, combined with his background in aeronautical engineering, made the assignment at Pax River a good fit for him. Over the next three years, he logs time in many of the new designs coming out, from the latest piston engine fighters like the Grumman Tiger Cat and Bear Cat to the early jets, flying America's first jet fighter, the P-59, in early 1945. With the end of the war, he's involved in testing the German ME-262. Although we'd say the 262 was well in advance of any U.S. design and flew nicely, its engines were horribly unreliable due to the material shortages the Germans had faced at the end of the war. After his fifth emergency landing, the program was terminated.
Carl's in on the early helo flight testing as well, officially being designated as Marine Helicopter Pilot Number 1 in 1946. I would love to have a look at his logbook from this time. The sheer number and different types of aircraft he was flying was amazing. Carl is heavily involved in testing the second wave of early jets coming out post-war, flying the P-80, FJ-1 Fury, and F-2H Banshee. By mid-1947, he has more time in jets than any other Navy Marine Corps pilot, and thus was the man selected by the Navy to try to take the world speed record away from the Air Force. The aircraft was the Douglas 558-1, the Skystreak. And on August 25, 1947, Carl takes the Skystreak to 650 miles an hour to become the fastest man alive. His record doesn't last long. An Air Force captain by the name of Chuck Yeager goes supersonic in the Bell X-1 just under two months later. When the Marine Corps stands up its first operational jet squadron, it's Lieutenant Colonel Carl, who is by a wide margin, the Corps' most experienced jet pilot, who was selected as commanding officer. He ushers the Marine Corps into the jet age with VMF-122 in September of 1947, flying the McDonnell FH-1 Phantom. It was still a pretty loose period in military aviation, where if you could talk somebody into checking you out on an aircraft, you could go fly it. Those days would soon come to an end, but for now, despite being a CO of an FH-1 squadron, Carl continues to fly helos on the side with the local search and rescue squadron, while also logging time in F-84s, F-86s, and F-9F pamphlers, among others. With his tour of 122 over, Carl returns to flight test in late 1949, personally requested by Navy Captain Frederick Trapnell, commander of the Naval Air Test Center, or NATSE. From the book Harnessing the Sky, quote, Since Marion Carl's departure from Patuxent two years earlier, Trapp had wondered how to get him back. Carl was senior enough to return as deputy director of flight test, but that job would not open for a while. Then, in late 1949, the chief of the carrier section of flight test was scheduled to be transferred to a new assignment. Offering Carl the top post in carrier section was one notch down from director, but it would still afford plenty of opportunity to fly, and flying jobs were few and far between for lieutenant colonels. Trapp had a hunch this would appeal to Carl, and he got on the phone to his friends at Marine Corps headquarters to see if he could arrange to get Carl back. When they told him they were thinking of moving Carl to a non-flying job, Chap nearly went through the roof. It was easy to imagine his side of the conversation. Carl was a truly outstanding naval aviator, indeed one of the best test pilots Trapp had ever known. Nazi was on the verge of testing the next generation of jet fighters having swept wings, Almost a big an upgrade for the Navy and Marine Corps is getting jets in the first place, and Carl was desperately needed at Patuxent to help navigate this transition. It verged on criminal to move him to a non-flying assignment at this point in his career, particularly with pressure mounting to deliver the right new airplanes for the Navy and Marines. The Marine Corps eventually relented, allowing that if Carl wanted the Patuxent job, they would let him come. Unquote. Back at Patuxent River, Lieutenant Colonel Carl is again involved in a variety of projects. It's always an interesting time. For one VIP demonstration, in what he called the world's shortest air show, Carl is catapulted off a carrier in a Bearcat and immediately loops it back into a resting landing back on the carrier. It wasn't all fun, though. Flight test was a dangerous game, especially back then. In spin testing the Grumman Guardian, 
one of the many types Carl was involved in, he can't get her to recover. With the waters of the Chesapeake Bay rapidly approaching, Carl attempts to jump, but is trapped by the centrifugal forces. He finally manages to get out and pulls his D-ring. He doesn't even get one full swing out of the parachute before he hits the water. For the second time in his career, his fellow aviators think he's dead as a splash impact from the crash to obscured his parachute opening. It was that close. But they soon spot him in the water next to the crash site. He survives with no major injuries. Several months later, he breaks his back attempting to land an F-9F Panther whose engine has failed. Although he's able to regain his flight status, his days at Pax Rover are over. When he leaves in October of 1952, he has over 6,500 flight hours, including 850 in jets and 200 in helicopters. That's an insane amount of flying. It's 13 years of flying 40 plus hours every month. In the Harrier, we were happy to break 20 hours a month. I ended a 20-year career with about 2,500 hours. Crazy. Anyway, although he leaves Nazi, he's not quite done with flight tests yet. It turns out while he was at Patuxent, he was the only pilot fitted for a special pressure suit for the D-558 Skyrocket II, the follow-on aircraft to the one he set the speed record in. With the aircraft finally ready for flight test in July of 1953, Carl is brought back to fly it. The Navy is going for the altitude record in the experimental D-558. On 21st August 1953, he makes it to 83,235 feet and 1.7 Mach. It's not officially recognized as an official record required taking off from the ground and not an airdrop, but Carl's gone higher than any other manned aircraft. The famous civilian test pilot Scott Crossfield would later become the first man to fly at twice the speed of sound in the same aircraft. Carl returns to the Marine Corps for another squadron command, his third this time flying the photo recon version of the Banshee. His squadron would play a cat and mouse game with MiGs over mainland China during the Taiwan crisis in 1955. Carl continues flying through the various staff tours that follow and by 1957 has over 9,000 flight hours. In 1962, he's briefly brought up to be Deputy Commandant for Aviation, the number one aviator in the Marine Corps, even though as a colonel he's outranked by several under him. In 1964, Carl's promoted Brigadier General and given command of the 1st Marine Expeditionary Brigade, a mixed infantry and aviation task force. He continues to fly the latest jets, the F-8 Crusader, the F-4 Phantom, and the A-4 Skyhawk, and surpasses 11,000 flight hours. In 1965, he's off to Vietnam as Commanding General, 3rd Marine Amphibious Force, before taking over as Deputy CG of the 3rd Marine Aircraft Wing in country. He flies his first combat mission in over 20 years. This time it's in the supersonic F-4 Phantom, a far cry from the F-4F Wildcat of his Guadalcanal days. He would fly over 40 combat missions in Vietnam, a majority in UH-1 Huey slicks or gunships. These aren't relatively safe missions planned to keep the general out of harm's way. He's doing ad hoc medevacs or prisoner grabs under fire. His aide would say about him, quote, Nothing seemed to rattle him. On one occasion, we landed on the edge of a field to eat sea rations, listening to a firefight from beyond a tree line with stray rounds ricocheting nearby. The general continued eating nonchalantly 
while I resisted the urge to take cover behind something. Unquote. His aide would go on to say, quote, I told my friends that General Carl was the last of the old warriors because he didn't spend a lot of time sitting behind a desk. We covered a lot of ground, and usually we were gone all day on business to log three or four hours of flight time. Unquote. Eventually, Carl has to be ordered by the Commandant of the Marine Corps to stop flying combat missions. In January 1966, with his time in Vietnam over, he heads home to command the 2nd Marine Air Wing at Cherry Point, North Carolina, where he continues to fly the latest Marine Corps aircraft, the F-4, OV-10 Bronco, and A-6 Intruders, as well as the latest helicopters like the CH-53. He even manages his time in a MiG-17, clandestinely flown by the Air Force out of the Tonopah Test Range in Nevada. On May 31, 1973, Major General Marion Carl retires after 35 years of service. He had over 13,000 flight hours, an astonishing average of over 30 hours a month for 35 years. A statistic made even more impressive when he realized most of the time was in fighters. His flying career began in biplanes and ended in supersonic fighters. With 18 and a half aerial victories, he was the Marine's seventh leading ace. On June 28, 1998, then 82-year-old Marion Carl confronts an intruder that has broken into his home. He is shot and killed when he attempts to disarm the attacker holding a shotgun on his wife of 55 years, Edna. The old warrior still had a heart of a lion. Number 5 I hope you enjoyed this episode on one of the giants of Marine Corps aviation. The next episode will bring the focus back to Guadalcanal as VMF-212 and VMF-121 take over the fight from 223 and 224. As always, I can be reached at aviationmoh at gmail.com. Any feedback and comments are appreciated.